Welcome to episode 42 of Miles and Pints, the Travel and Beer Podcast. I'm Derek Dye. And I'm Jeff Brownson, and together we're drinking our way through this amazing world one pint at a time. Whether you love to travel, you love a cold local beer, or you just can't get enough of either, you're listening to the right podcast. That's what we're here to talk about. Our guest today is Ashley Smith from My Wanderlusty Life. Ashley is a longtime travel blogger, a World War II buff, and an expert on one of my favorite topics, Oktoberfest. We'll talk to her about all of this and more over the course of the next two episodes. Before we get to that interview, though, let's take a minute to thank our regular listeners. Without you, we'd just be talking to ourselves. If you haven't already, click that button to subscribe to the show so you won't miss anything we have coming down the line. And now, let's get to the good part. Sit back, relax, crack open your favorite brew, and enjoy our chat with Ashley. Welcome, everyone. Today, we have a guest who I'm excited to finally get on the show because when I think of beer and beer festivals, this person comes to mind. And before we get to her, I'm going to say hello to Derek, who is hanging out over in Maryland, dodging the rainstorms. How are you this morning, Derek? Doing great, Jeff. How are you this week? I am. It's been a week. It's been a bit of a week, but uh, I'm, I'm hanging in there. At least none of us are in New Orleans because, gosh, we're all seeing on the news what they're going through this week. Yes, it does not look good down there. But in cheerier news, let's talk about beer and travel, and let's welcome to the show my friend Ashley from My Wanderlusty Life. Ashley, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. And we're excited to have you here and do these episodes. Uh, A lot of people, if they've followed you before, they probably know that you talk a lot about Oktoberfest and you do a lot with Oktoberfest and that's actually where I originally met you was at Oktoberfest in Munich. Mm-hmm. We had chatted online a little bit before that but I wanted to get these episodes in this fall so we can talk about some of that and even though the festival isn't happening this year maybe we can get some people inspired to do a little bit of Oktoberfest at home which I know you've done a lot of content for during the pandemic. So Yeah that's really taken off too so we got to fill that gap since there's nowhere to go this year. Yeah, we keep planning and we keep trying to go there and it just keeps not happening. So hopefully the world will be back on track for next year. But let's get started where we always do with the podcast and start with what we are drinking. And I'll let you go first, Ashley, because you're the guest. And uh, what have you got there? This, I guess I said morning before, but it's really afternoon that we're recording. Who knows? Whenever you're listening to it. Um, I am drinking a full... (laughs) leader of Polliner Oktoberfest. So I went full on three beers this morning. That is amazing. <laughs> I I am so jealous of that. You can't see this, listeners, but she just held up the full glass leader stein with the right logo on it and everything. She's not messing around. That's and right. I'm super jealous that I don't have yeah. that beer. And not only that, but the the camera perspective as we're uh, seeing each other on video while recording the podcast, it makes that glass of beer look like it's the size of you, Ashley, which is pretty amazing, regardless of the time of day, right? When you see how much work I have to put into lifting it, so it's not normal beer. (laughs) Lifting a 50-pound dumbbell over there full of beer. Yeah. Yeah, and how about you, Derek? I'm going with a local favorite, Jeff. Lot 3 from Evolution Craft Brewing. It's their um, 
flagship IPA. Always love it, and it's a Eastern Shore favorite. What do you have drinking? Excellent. I was inspired by our last podcast episode with Stu and talking about Portland, and I know that you love Portland, and yes. I knew we were going to talk to Ashley today, and she's up in the New England area. So I poured myself an Allagash Triple, which I thought, I don't have a full liter of beer, but I'm going with, with strength over quantity, I think. This that's is. nice. So that's what I've got in the glass today. You can never go wrong with Allagash, right? Doesn't really matter what they do, sour, Belgian, double, triple, quad, whatever. It's always good. Yeah, they kind of know what they're doing up there. Yes, they do. I agree. That's one of the ones I drink a lot up here. It's one of my favorites. All right, Ashley, let's get into a little bit of background before we get into what do, what you're doing now, which is kind of the exciting part of the interview, I think. <laughs> but um, background, start us out early. Where did you grow up? How did, did you go to school for some sort of career? Did you get us through to, to grown-up Ashley? I'm from Memphis, Tennessee. That's where I grew up, and I spent most of my time. Um, I actually have – my background is in sports management, So I worked for a few years with some professional sports teams um, until I decided I didn't want to do that anymore. And then I went back to school to study biology, specifically zoology. Um, Now I'm getting my master's degree in World War II studies. So I'm a little bit of all over the place as my schooling has been. So you're just collecting degrees at this point? You're collecting degrees and information, can't stop learning? Yes. Oh, if school was free, I would be in school for the rest of my life. I absolutely love school. That's such a nerdy thing to say. But I think that's why I like traveling, too, because you it's just a nonstop learning experience. Yeah, there's always something new. Yeah. yeah. And any specific uh, interest in World War II? Any specific area? Um, I guess I have a specific interest in um, Normandy in the D-Day invasion. That's where a lot of my interest lies, but... As I'm learning so much in my classes, I find I'm so much I'm so interested in so many other topics now. So I just kind of enjoy all of it, I guess. And enjoy is a weird word. I hate using that when I talk about World War II. You're more intrigued by it or Yeah, I guess that's the good word. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So you had these different uh degrees that you picked up throughout the years and you said you worked for a little bit in sports management did you ever work in the the zoology or biology field i did um for about 10 years i guess i worked in zoos and aquariums and some wildlife centers and did some volunteering i did um i worked at a zoo for a few years in memphis where i made the meals for all the animals (laughs) and then i worked um when I moved to Florida, I worked at the Clearwater Marine Aquarium, where that the dolphin with the prosthetic tail, you know what I'm talking about? There's a movie yeah, made out of yeah. it. So I worked there for a little bit um, with the sea turtles and leading tours. And I worked at Big Cat Rescue in Tampa um, from Tiger <laughs> King. So um, I never met Carol Baskin, at least if I did, I certainly don't remember. <laughs> I think that's because she was evil and ignored everyone and all the volunteers and was a terrible person. At least that's what I learned from that uh, documentary. Exactly. Yes. I have no idea. (laughs) So I'm wondering if you worked at the aquarium with the prosthetic dolphin tail 
and you worked at Big Cat Rescue, if maybe someone is secretly following your life and making movies and shows about it and they just haven't got to the yeah, part of it Yeah, I yet. never put that together, but I think you're right about that. <laughs> yeah, you should definitely be looking over your shoulder. Someone's paying attention. I should. That's funny. I didn't even, that didn't even occur to me. So maybe we can expect that a uh, movie contract about the podcast any day now, Jeff. I think so. I mean, it's it may take a little bit because I think it was a while ago that she did the Big Cat Rescue. <laughs> a and little bit ago. The Tiger King just became popular during the... Man, that was during the pandemic, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's like hard to believe. so long ago, but that was actually just at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah, binge watching that like last March or April, I guess. Yeah. And now yeah. I'm just sitting here waiting for Fridays so that a new episode of Ted Lasso comes out. Oh, I have yet to get into that, but I hear, I've hear i been hearing about it a lot. Yeah, it's a wonderful show. It's very heartwarming. It's Aww. It always puts you in a good mood, except for the episodes where you end up sad. It's, <laughs> it's wonderful. But back to the interview. The, so you've done this variety of careers and jobs, it sounds like, in a few places. When did you start to really get into traveling? Because... Typically, someone who's making the meals for animals, that's, that's not really a traveling job. That's you kind of have to be there to feed the animals because they can't right. feed themselves. So when did you start to get into the world of travel that you're in now? Um, I had been working. This is before I worked at the zoo, actually. I, my husband's job took him to South America, and I had never been out of the country before. So I went there for, I went a few times actually to Venezuela, which was my first few um, visits out of the country. And just- That's what most people start with, I think, Venezuela. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, um, but it was after just that first time where I was completely hooked on travel and just how different it was and nobody speaks my language. And I, it was a huge struggle trying to order food and get around by myself, but it was- an awesome challenge that I wanted to just repeat over and over. And was it the challenge piece that really drove this addiction to travel? I mean, what about the experience did you just fall in love with immediately? I think it was the challenge, actually. Um, You know, you like you go to a restaurant and you order food. It's not easy. We do it all the time. But you go to a country where you don't speak the language and you're like in a small town where nobody speaks English and you have to order food at a restaurant and you first of all you don't know what you're ordering and it's just I don't know it's just a new challenge you know you we have we're so stuck in our routines that sometimes we just need a challenge to keep us going it's funny you say that about the not knowing what you're ordering because we I I mentioned that it's been kind of a, a long week for me and for my family but my son was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes this week And that's one of the questions when we were talking about eating with the doctors and nurses and traveling. And I actually had to ask at one point, I said, how do we calculate the carbs on something if it's we're pretty sure it's a stick of meat, but we don't know? (laughs) And they were like, well, you just have to take your best guess and hope for the and and like do the best you can with it. But there have been many times throughout the years of travel where we've ordered something and either it comes out completely different than what we thought we were ordering or you take a bite and you're like, no, I'm not sure that's meat or I'm not sure that's what I thought mm-hmm. it was. And I love that about travel. I think that's wonderful. A street market is one of my favorite things. It's just going to get a little bit trickier when we're traveling with coal from now on. Yeah, I agree. That is a very fun part of travel. I have food allergies myself, so I kind of go to the same thing. You know, I want to try all the stuff and 
I don't really care what it is. I just want to try it. But now I kind of have to figure out if it's going to have nuts in it or <laughs> I just carry my EpiPen around everywhere. Yeah. Just in case. Oh, and I was going to go there too, Ashley. I have a, a severe anaphylactic reaction to shellfish. So mm-hmm. I now have the cards that I carry in the various languages of where we're going. Mm-hmm. I travel with my EpiPens and I, I would love to be as adventurous as Jeff and just eh, hope for the best and I'll be okay. <laughs> but yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't work for those, those of us with anaphylactic reactions, right? Right. Yes. Luckily I do not have to carry a card that says if my throat appears to be closing, it's probably because of this stab yeah. me with the thing in my pocket. <laughs> at least with, um, I think at least with, you know, with me, it's almonds mostly. And with you, it's shellfish. You kind of have a general idea of what kind of items you need to avoid. I basically avoid sweets and dessert items. You probably are fine eating beef. It, it, you would think so. Um, I, was, <laughs> I was talking about this in my Facebook group the other day, uh, Travel on Points, that uh, Thailand was a, a very significant challenge because the most... Um, the most safe foods you would ever think of are somehow coated in um, shellfish uh, paste and things like that. Uh, mm-hmm. We went to a, we went to a, a restaurant and finally they figured out my issue and the chef came out and he was like, "The chicken skewers, you can't have those." I'm like, "It's chicken on a stick." Yeah, but before they put them on the grill, they apparently cover them in shrimp paste. I mean, oh it, it makes zero sense, but yeah. you know, finally this Canadian chef comes out and he's like, n- n- you can't have the chicken skewers. I'm like, that looks like the safest thing on the menu. Nope. Nope. Not in Thailand. <laughs> <laughs> no chicken for you. No chicken for you. So Ashley, when we got into the travel side of things, when did you start getting into beer and craft beer or German beer or a, a variety of different beers? Did that happen I, I would love it if you would say that that happened in Venezuela too, but I doubt it was the exact same time. But maybe let's see let's see what you I have did to say. drink I did drink a good amount of beer in Venezuela, but um, it actually happened before that. I worked at there's a a small chain in the south called Flying Saucer. It's um, a bar that has you know like 200 beers on tap and something like the same number in bottles, and they have beers from all over the world, all different styles, and I worked there when I was like 22, you know, when I was drinking Bud Light and Coors Light. And so working there, I got to try all kinds of new stuff. And while at first I didn't like most of the stuff, um, you know, like the IPAs and the heavy beers. Um, yeah, for I sure. If just, you're, yeah. If, if, if that's you're your drinking first, Bud Light and right. Miller Light, it's hard to make that transition. At yeah. First. So over time I started finding stuff that I kind of liked and I don't know, it just kind of quickly escalated from there. So you would say that your job made you drink? Yes. Part of the training was to, to drink a healthy number of <laughs> beers, like one in each style so you could compare it and, you know, tell people help the what customers pick one. Yeah. I always volunteer to do that at places, but no one has let me yet. I'm always like, you know, if you need someone to drink one of every beer right. and be able to tell people about it, or you need someone to taste all of the menu items, I'm here for you. And they always just laugh and they never invite me to do it. You're like, I'm serious though. I'm I'm willing to take one for the team. Sounds like we just need to go apply for a job at the Flying Saucer, Jeff. That might be it. Well, you have to wear a plaid miniskirt and knee highs, so just as long I'm as out. you know that up front. <laughs> I'm actually willing to do that if I get to okay. taste all the beers. Yeah. You could call it a kilt and it would be okay, right? 
Yes. There you go. I exactly. did recently find out I'm slightly Scottish. So <laughs> enough to wear a kilt. We're good. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. I've been to a perfect. couple of flying saucer locations. I think Nashville uh, mm-hmm. and Saint. There's one in St. Louis, right by uh, Bush Stadium, uh, yeah. for the Cardinals. And uh, you're right. I mean, I've never worked there, but uh, as a as a patron, amazing beer selection, amazing service uh, for a high end uh, beer connoisseur. And uh, I've loved all of my experiences there. Yeah, it's a great place, and they they've been open for something like 20 something years now and you know they were the only place around where you could get good beers and it was kind of like before the whole craft beer thing kind of exploded so it was it was a unique place and one of the most popular spots in memphis for sure i find it impressive that no matter what guest we have on and no matter what restaurant or pub they talk about or little beer bar that they talk about derek's like oh yeah i've been there i've i tried that out it could be in the west coast it could be in new england it could now we're in the middle of the country he's like oh yeah i've been there a couple of times as as you know jeff i'm extremely (laughs) blessed in the fact that my wife loves beer as much as i do and we travel all over the united states seeking out the best beer my wife and i have been to a baseball game at bush stadium and we specifically found the flying saucer and pre-game for hours that's a good life you live it's a good life can't complain although apparently i now need a job at the flying saucer so yeah they have they have men that work there barbacks and bartenders and such. there we go yeah as long as i can try all the beer and talk about it perfect perfect you will have to look at me wearing a skirt out and walking around the floor though kilt so. <laughs> kilt, kilt <Jeff>. yes kilt <laughs> So, Ashley, we've got the travel piece of the puzzle. We've got the beer piece of the puzzle. At some point, you decided that uh, starting to blog about your travels and beers and all that good stuff was the way you wanted to go. How did that happen? Well, writing has always been kind of just like a hobby. and something I was always really good at at work. Um, And I was working at a very boring, unfulfilling desk job. And I decided I was going to start a blog. This was 2014, just as kind of a creative outlet, just something to do and have fun and, you know, get to write just for fun, really. So I started that. I did it at my job. I probably shouldn't have, but it was a boring desk job. I had plenty of free time, so I was blogging away. And I, at first, I didn't know what I was going to write about. And I thought, you know what? I go on a lot of trips. Maybe I should write about that. People might find that interesting. I had never read a travel blog before. I didn't realize that there were already millions of travel blogs. It was like a brand new idea you came up with. Yes, I thought it was a completely original idea. I never, I was never a blog reader. You know, I I don't know anything about that. Um, I still feel like I don't, even though I'm sure I do. Know a little, at least a little bit. Just a touch. Um, Yes. So I... Loved doing that. That was a ton of fun. I really, really enjoyed it. And I learned everything from scratch, which was kind of a nightmare. But um, it was a lot of crying and throwing things involved at first. But I really, really enjoyed it. And then a couple years passed and I was like, you know what? People, you can make money doing this. I had no idea that that was even a possibility. I don't know anything about the internet or about computers. So I started working towards that just as again another kind of fun challenge i thought you know see if i can make money from this fun thing i'm doing on the side and then that grew and grew and a couple years later i quit my full-time job to focus solely on 
growing my blog and do some freelance writing here and there, um, but basically just writing on a full-time basis. Well, that sounds wonderful. I, from our previous conversation, I'm surprised you didn't go back and get a degree in travel blogging before you did that. Yeah, but I think you know, if there was one, I would probably have it. <laughs> you're kind of learning on the road as you go through it. Yes. So that brings us to what you're doing now. I guess we'll start with one of the things you're doing now because you're doing several. But the thing that I found and where we first connected was through your social media for your site, My Wanderlusty Life, which I tell people I recommend your site to people all the time. And I always tell people that it is the most informative and most hilarious blog posts you will read about a topic. So I absolutely love reading them. <laughs> Anytime you put out a new thing, I'm like, well, now I'm going to want to go there and I'm going to find the funniest way to see it. So I, I love the content. But tell us a little bit about, was that what you first started with blogging or did it develop into that and how, how My Wander Lusty Life came about? That's actually exactly how it started. I've since gotten rid of my earlier blog posts because they have no purpose anymore, but um, they were heavy on the funny. I talked about, you know, more like um, personal trips and things that went wrong, a lot of that stuff. It has kind of evolved into a more informative style because mm -hmm. that's what people like the most, you know? They want to learn about trips and how to travel to these places in a real kind of way, because you're not gonna find me on top of a mountain in a flowy dress taking pictures, you know? I, I'm not, I don't write fluff articles that don't really help anybody. I want people to be able to get something out of it that's actually useful. Um, like how, you know, like exactly which steps to take if they wanna go to a certain destination or exactly what they need to pack, um, because all this, Knowing all that up front saves you times so where you can actually spend your time doing fun, useful things on your trip and not trying to figure out which train to take or going and picking up all the stuff you didn't pack because you didn't know you had to. And it's funny because I just tell it straight exactly is how it happens. I don't really, I don't fluff it up, you know, I don't sugarcoat anything. I tell you exactly what happened. And if, I mean, you understand, you travel, stuff goes wrong for sure. And so many people glaze over that part, you know, to make it all pretty and travel's great. But I'm like, it's the stuff that goes wrong that makes the best stories. So I always include that too. They're cautionary tales, if nothing else. I will say if you travel and nothing bad ever happens to you, you don't travel enough. Exactly. Right. You're doing it so wrong. Exactly. I mean, you know, if you take, you know, one small trip a year and it goes perfectly, travel more. Part of the fun of travel is, you know, things quote unquote going wrong. That's when some of the funnest adventures happen. Absolutely. <laughs> and I can say I, I love the way how you cover things in that way and that you see the real side of things. Uh, one example is I'm headed to Lisbon in a couple of weeks and you have a post about Lisbon. And I think I don't know, at least a third, maybe half of that post is about your battle with stairs in Lisbon and how yeah, the steps were Lisbon. terrible and you just had to keep going up steps. And it wasn't done in a like a, a downtrodden, these are awful way, but it was, this was a beautiful view, but we had to climb 3000 steps to get here and things yes. like that. So now I know that I'm going to die in Lisbon, 
because yes. I'll have too many steps to climb. But I'm excited to I'm excited that I read about that because you would read so many posts about Lisbon that say this view is amazing, this restaurant is great, this is the and nothing mentions the fact that you had to climb up 342 steps to see that view. So I love that you add the reality in there so that people can see what it's actually like to travel. Thank you. Yes, I like to um fill in the gaps, I guess, you know, like go here, here and here and do this, this, this. But I fill in all the stuff in between, like this train ride is going to suck and it's going to be this long and you're going to miss your platform. So you have to make sure to go right instead of left because that stuff's that's the useful stuff. Everybody knows where to go in Paris, you know, but it's the, the in between how to get there and how to do it right stuff that people really need to know. And my trip to Lisbon was one of my biggest travel disasters. Just the whole three days there was one cautionary tale after another. So I'm glad you read that one. Yes, I think I've learned enough from it that hopefully my whole trip will not be one big cautionary tale. We and shall that's see. the point, yeah. People will have to pay attention and see as it happens. Yes. If it happens, I don't know. It's, when are you going? Uh, theoretically, I leave on the 13th of September. Oh, okay. So <laughs> soon. Good luck. And, and new restrictions may come out on the 12th, so you never know. Yeah, that's why I say, if it happens, we'll see. That was my original uh, flight over for Oktoberfest for this year. Was Aww. I was going to Lisbon for a few days and then on to Munich, and I am not doing that anymore. But That's exactly what I did. I went to Lisbon on the way to Munich. They yeah. had the, the free stopover program, so I did that. So you remember how I said someone's just copying your life and making movies and stuff? It's me. I know. <laughs> I'm just following what you did. <laughs> well, that's creepy. Actually, no. I found your post after I had booked that trip and changed it four <laughs> times. So. Oh, nice. Okay. A lot of people do that, though. They tell me, I have booked this exact trip, like the same exact itinerary. And that's fine. Copy it. You know, like I want you to do that. That's. Yeah, that's the reason you put it out there, right? Yeah. I, I think, you know, it's great when readers or listeners want to copy your itinerary. You know, that number one, it shows they trust you. Y mm -hmm. You said it was a good trip and, and do X, Y, and Z, and they're like, sounds great. I'm going to book it exactly the same way. That's that's awesome. Yeah. And then you got people like me who read about a trip which you have said was a mostly disaster, and I'm like, yeah, I'll book that. I'll go on that. Yeah. Well, it's not a – it probably was – it's not a disaster for everyone. Uh, so many people told me Lisbon is so perfect and it's so great and it's the best destination. So I had high expectations and then my experience was completely different than that. Some of it in my, was my own making, but. I'll consider it a success if they let me off the plane at this point. No, exactly. If you can get there. Yeah, it would be lovely. Start. So my wanderlusty life is your main thing at this point, correct? Mm -hmm. And then you thought, you know, I, I kind of like not enjoy. I enjoy learning about <laughs> World War II. So you thought you would start something with that also. And that's much newer, right? Mm -hmm. And that's uh, Destination World War II. Tell yep. us a little bit about that. Well, I'd always had an interest in World War II topics, just on the side, I guess. And I found myself more and more wanting to visit these places. I spend a lot of time in Germany, probably um, about a month or so every year. Um, you know, I have some downtime <laughs> during Oktoberfest and there's so much World War II history to see when you're there. Mm -hmm. So I find myself wanting to visit these places more and more and it doesn't really mesh with the style of my Wanderlusty life, but I want to write about them because I feel so passionately about this topic. So 
you know, I put, there's, I've had a few articles on my Wanderlusty Life about World War II, but, you know, it's a different thing. You can't write about a, a serious topic like that on a humorous site. So I, I still really wanted to write about them. So I did some digging and found that no one else had a travel blog that was specifically about World War II. So I just decided to start one because I finally figured out how to blog a little bit. So starting one wasn't the nightmare it was the first time. It was a lot easier to ramp things up this time. You didn't have to learn yes. everything from scratch. Yes. But you did go ahead and start a basically, I don't know, 90% different topic blog from what you were already doing, different style of writing, different topics of content, because I have to assume that you're part masochist and you were like, no, let me see if I can figure out SEO for this completely different type of topic yes. now that I've done it for one. I like challenges. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it all goes back to that desire to travel. I guess it does. I know. And I didn't even know that about myself until our conversation today. So <laughs> something to think about, I guess. That's actually why we do. The, that's why we do this podcast is to help people learn about right. themselves. And make, therapy. Make a better world. Oh, thank you. I don't know if we do any of that or not. <laughs> we just did, Derek. <laughs> For the first time ever. <laughs> Thanks, Ashley. We learned something about ourselves today. <laughs> it's, it's the new mission of the podcast. Yes. Oh, yeah. So when did you launch Destination World War II? Um, December 2019. So right before the pandemic, the perfect time to launch a travel site. No. No, it wasn't. <laughs> no. Yeah, you're, you're a little bit right about that. I, uh, I can commiserate with you. I, I launched my blog, my travel, uh, awards travel blog and Facebook group in August of 2019. So also terrible timing. Uh, so it, it, it's good. We're both here and still standing and yes. smiling about it, right? Yes, we're survivors. It's like a soft launch of a restaurant, I think, because you had the time to start building the content when people didn't even want to look at that kind of thing. And now I, well... I was going to say now as things start to open up, but it looks like we're heading back towards things closing again. But as someday when, when travel really starts to get going again, I think it, it'll be great, both of you, that people have those resources that you've built over all this time. And it's just, it's a terrible time for everything. But <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> that's when the podcast goes dark this week. <laughs> Jeff just summed up the last year and a half of everyone's life. Yeah. It's a Terrible really time dark time. <laughs> That's why we drink. He's a man of few words, see? But they're just so powerful. It's such a dark time. So yes. in all seriousness, um, how has the reception been for that, for that new website? It's been really good. I kind of thought this whole time I was the only weirdo that was interested in World War II that wasn't like a 65-year-old man. Um, but apparently I was wrong because I've gotten so many emails from, you know, people my age and women, especially who are like, I have always been into this. I love this new site. This is so great. I can't wait to follow you and read all this. And I can't wait to go to these places. So that's been really cool because that was a thing that I thought only I had. I didn't really think there were people out there who shared that weird interest with me, but. I can I say that I followed it more than I expected to. When you launched it, I was like, oh, that's cool. I'll support this. She has a new project. This is great. It's not really an interest of mine. But I found in some of the things that you've written, I find that you've I've been to a lot of those places just from travel, whether it be in Germany or whether it be in France or whether it be in the 
uh, southern part of the U.S., different places, or here in D.C. even, different places that there are monuments or memorials to World War II I have just ended up at in my travels. So I I wouldn't say that it's a topic that I'm super interested in, but it's a topic that I've seen enough and experienced enough of the memorials that I know enough to be competent in it, maybe? Well, that that was a huge goal of mine, too, is, you know, with a topic like World War II, the people who are into it are, like, into it, and that's their whole thing. So, but I didn't want to reach out to those people. I wanted to reach out to people like you, you know, who were like, I didn't have a particular interest in it, but I do go to a lot of these places and see the stuff, and I wanted to help people to kind of see how it is everywhere and how, you know, you go on a trip to Paris, you can easily make a trip to Normandy from there and, you know, see all that stuff. And, you know, or, or when you're in Paris, like here are the World War II things you can see like while you're there. So it's kind of geared towards a more mainstream kind of traveler who goes to the top sites and places and not necessarily people who take a three week trip around the battlefields of Belgium, you know, because they already have their idea, they know what's going on. But you know, the everyday people who don't follow World War II as much, you know, can still see some of these places on their regular travels. And they should. And I think it's good that you're able to tie it all together. Because like I said, I have seen some on a trip to France when I went to Normandy, I've seen some in Germany, I've seen some in Poland. And to be able to have one place where that's comprehensively tied all together and you can see the relationships and I think is really helpful for the the casual World War II traveler like me. Right. Good. You get it. That's awesome. Yes. I Apparently, I'm your target audience for that. You are. That's awesome. Excellent. <laughs> now, we've talked about the travel blogging. We've talked about the... I guess, secondary travel blogging. So travel blogging and more travel blogging. I want to talk about another thing that intrigues me. And actually, in your background, the learning about the zoology, and that makes a little more sense in it. But you also are a beekeeper. Is that correct? Yes, I am. Um, for Why about six years now. For I'm sorry, how long? Six years. Six years? Okay. Mm-hmm. So why, how, when... A lot of people, I'm sure, instantly think you're crazy. A lot of other people are like, that's awesome. I am just thinking fresh honey. That's fantastic. Yeah, all so, of that. So kind of go over how, at what point in your life do you decide, I think I need, you know, like a whole box of bees in my backyard. And it was kind of an epiphany like that, too. Okay, so I read The Secret Life of Bees by Sue Monk Kidd, um, and it's about South Carolina in 1964. It's not about bees at all, but some of the main characters are beekeepers, and so they do kind of talk about bees in the book just as a kind of like a side topic, I guess. And I was like, is this true? Like the things that the bees do in this book are really bizarre. So I was looking that up and found all this interesting stuff about bees they're just it's just the most insane sci-fi things you can imagine take place inside the beehive so i was while i was reading that i've discovered that people can just be beekeepers at their house so i was like i thought beekeeping was an operation you know like a huge farm tons of beehives like a whole thing 
So I was like, you mean to tell me just anybody could be a beekeeper? Just get a beehive in their backyard? So I was like, I think I want to do this. So I went online and I bought a box of bees. <laughs> and then I bought the hive equipment and all that. And then a few months later, the bees arrived. <laughs> and uh, that was that. And you've been a beekeeper ever since? Yes. It really was just, um, maybe I'll be a beekeeper. <laughs> I just thought it would be cool to have honey all the time. And in your state, does it re require any type of uh, state or county approval or licensing or anything? It doesn't. Um, but you can, you know, register yourself with the state beekeeper. And they like you to do that because then the state beekeeper comes and inspects your hives for you. And so they kind of help you out to, you know, make sure you're doing everything the right way and uh, keeping your bees alive. So they, they want you to have bees. It's more so a, a, a means of helping you rather than kind of lording over you or... Right. We don't have to pay fees or, you know, like you said, like have a license or anything like that. They are just trying to encourage more and more people to have honeybees at their house. That's really cool. And where do you order a box of bees from? The internet. <laughs> just, I know, I, I'm asking that question, but I don't think you're completely insane just because my wife as a science teacher, we have had boxes of butterflies, boxes of worms, boxes of ants show up at our house at various times. Yeah. And I'm always like, do I bring this inside? Do I leave this outside? That's funny. Um, you can order them on the internet and they will literally ship them USPS. The post office will call you when your buzzing, your big buzzing box arrives for you to come pick them up. I don't think they'll deliver them to your house for you, but they will hold them at the post office for you to go pick them up. And have you ever had any problems with neighbors? I follow an account called Best of Next Door on Twitter, which is hilarious. <laughs> but one of the things that they posted one time was a neighbor who was asking on next door that they want to know if they can sue the person next door to them because the bees keep coming over and taking pollen out of their flowers and the neighbor isn't paying for that or compensating them Ugh. anyway for the pollen that they're taking. And I was like, wow, that's wow. a whole nother level of crazy. But have you ever experienced anything with that neighbors complaining because of the buzzing or the fact that there are more bees in the area? Um, not really. We keep our neighbors um, stocked with honey. They really like, they have gardens too. So they like that the bees come and help out their gardens grow. They say they've never had more vegetables before. Um, it's been a pretty positive experience all around. And this one box of bees, how much, uh, how much honey does it produce on an annual basis? Um, well, we didn't start with one hive. Um, we were like, you know what, if we're going to do one, we might as well do two. And then the next year we added a third. That um, was going right to be my now, question. When he asked right. that, I was like, oh, it's not one box anymore. I know no, it's not it's one never box just anymore. One box. Um, so three have, boxes. Yes. And we get I'm trying to think of what, how much honey we get. We get about three to 400 pounds of honey a year. Wow. Yes. That's a lot of honey. That is a lot of honey. That is a lot. That's way, way more than we ever expected to get. And now I'm thinking back to our Portland, Maine episodes from the uh, fermentary and the mead he made from the local honey, Jeff, and remembering how good that was and he, him talking about getting the fresh honey, and now I'm thinking about all the mead and other drinks we could make with three to 400 pounds of honey. We have um, two kinds of mead on tap at my house right now. <sighs> all right. 
Jeff, Derek, let's hop I in the car. Need bees. <laughs> I think hives has to be go into the floor plan of that new house you're building. I think you need some hives out back. That's that's uh, future Derek issues. Right now, you and I need to get in the car and drive to Ashley's house so we can try this mead. <laughs> yes. This is short. This is short term Derek and Jeff life. Short term Derek and Jeff life sounds a lot easier. Yes. Yes. Well, you're right. We had so much. We didn't know what to do with it. We cook with it all the time. And we were like, let's try mead. So we have a couple of different meads. We have a four tap keg system at our house. And we brew beer. And apparently we make mead now, which I'm told is amazing. So here's a question for you. When you talk about all this honey that's being produced, when, when we go to our local farmer's market, let's say, and we see the local beekeeper there selling their honey, uh, is there a typical amount of boxes you need before you produce enough to to make that you know your side venture i mean would a three box person do that or would they need four to six or more than that when you say box do you mean like a hive yeah whatever you said you bought a box of bees so Mm -hmm. um and you have three hives now i guess three yes you buy um so when you first start out you buy a box of bees it's about the size of a shoe box and i think it has like ten thousand bees or something in it i can't even remember I think it's like three pounds of bees. I think they that's how they measure it. Um, and then obviously they just grow and grow and grow. And um, you end up with like, yeah, I guess it's about 10,000 bees in a hive. With just one hive, you can absolutely make enough honey to sell at a farmer's market. The amount of honey they make is just mind boggling. It's way more than I ever expected. I thought I, thought I was going to get a jar or two of honey. I thought maybe that'd be cool to get like a jar of honey every year. But now it's like... We've got like 400 pounds of honey in our house that we're uh, trying to <laughs> trying to make use of, and we have another like 200 pounds coming. Wow! And so. what does a quart weigh? I mean, 200 pounds. How many quarts would that be if you if you put it in quart jars? That's math. I don't know. I mean, yeah, are that's we a talking really hard question? You put it in <laughs> one pound jars. <laughs> okay. So hundreds and hundreds of jars of honey. Yes. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. I need some of that in my life. Yes. That's enough honey to start playing pranks on people. It is. We have whole buckets of it. Whole buckets. <laughs> we keep it in these giant, like, 15-gallon buckets or something. Well, that's going to be a topic for a whole other podcast. <laughs> we'll yes. Plan, plan some trickery with other travel bloggers and beer drinkers. Ugh. That's just gross to think about. I hate <laughs> when the honey gets on me, but I'm usually covered in it, so. Oh, good times. Who knew it was going to be a podcast all about covering people in honey? Always such a fun conversation with Ashley. Uh, Everyone should be sure to come back for the episode next week where we get into some more of her travels and talk about Oktoberfest because, man, does she know a lot about that subject. But for now, Derek, it's time to get into the Miles and Points with Pints segment. We're going to start off with credit cards like we always do, but somebody came out swinging today, the day that we're recording, and is going to take the place of Chase as our first thing we talk about. You know, Jeff, we've mentioned many times that Amex really loves to uh, swing for the fences, right? They like to come out and hit it hard, and golly day did they do it. First of the month, September 1st, early in the morning, Bloggers start checking their accounts because a lot of times Amex posts some new stuff first of the month. And something I don't think any of us have ever seen before, 
transfer bonuses. Sure, we've seen transfer bonuses here and there. 12 transfer bonuses. All at the same time, all from the same bank, Amex. Unheard of. Amex announced it's it's ridiculous, right? Airlines and hotels all at the same time. It's so awesome. We I mean, we could spend gosh, we could probably cover this topic for multiple hours, um, but we don't have that much time and people would be uh, bored out of their minds. But really, really, really incredible, Jeff. I would highly recommend that people take a look at these if you're booking any travel coming up because there is some huge value to be had with some of these transfer bonuses. And like you said, 12 all at once. I just, I when I first read it this morning, I thought it was a mistake. I read it on Twitter and I was like, well, they screwed that up. It must be two transfer bonuses. But no, it's actually 12 transfer bonuses. I think the most we've ever seen is two or three at a time. I can't remember a time when we had more than that. But you can take your pick of programs now. You've got uh, a 40% bonus to the Air Lingus Air Club. You've got 25% to Aero Mexico, 20% to Air Canada. Air France KLM Flying Blue is a 25% bonus. That's If people have listened to the podcast, you know that's one of my favorites. If you can match that up with one of those Flying Blue promo awards, you can really get some good value. I will say I took a look at the promo awards today. And I think due to the COVID situation, there are no promo awards from the U.S. currently. There are lots of short hauls in Europe that are discounted, and there are some from Mexico and from Canada. So take that into account. Always take a look at availability before you do these transfer bonuses. But I think there's some huge value to be had in the future with that Air France KLM Flying Blue one. Yeah, and couldn't agree more on that, Jeff. Stacking a promo award with a transfer bonus, unbelievable. Other bonuses, uh, Avianca Life Miles, one of the best ways to fly Lufthansa to Europe, especially Lufthansa First, 15% bonus. Uh, British Airways and Iberia, the other two uh, Avios programs like Aer Lingus, also a 40% bonus. Qantas, 20% bonus. Virgin Atlantic, 30% bonus. So all of a sudden, folks, like 90,000 points would get you a round trip to Japan on ANAF. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Hilton Honors, 30% bonus. And Marriott Bonvoy, 30% bonus. Those aren't as big. Those two hotel bonuses aren't as big, Jeff. We've already touched on a couple here. One I want to talk about. Um, as good as flying blue, the 25% bonus, as good as the Virgin Atlantic, you know, nine, about 90,000 transferred for ANA first round trip to Japan, short haul on American via British airways. You're doing these, you know, 1200, 1250 mile flights or whatever they are now, 7,500 points on British airways. You get that down to 6,000 with this transfer bonus, and you would have 900 points left over. So you're already 900 points onto your next award. 6,000 points to fly direct on AA. If that's available to British as a partner award, it'd be 12,500 on American. So you're literally flying with this transfer bonus for less than half of what American wants to charge you for the same flight. That's just unbelievable. The other obvious deal... I always, although I'm having personal problems with Iberia right now, they won't call me back uh, for the last four months, but they have the cheapest business awards and, and usually some of the cheapest economy awards to Europe. 
68,000 points typically will get you off-peak business round trip to Europe from the East Coast. That's 50,000 points now transferred. Membership rewards, 50,000 transferred to Iberia. You can fly from Boston or New York or Chicago round trip to Madrid in business. Some of those flights on brand new A350s for 50,000 points. That's unheard of, Jeff. That's bonkers. I mean, the blog world and our you know our word travel world, we're going nuts about this promo from Turkish for 33,000 points or whatever it is for, on that new route from Dallas to Istanbul. We're talking 25,000 points to go to Madrid or from Madrid in business. Unbelievable. It's fantastic. It's I mean, you can't even touch that. If you're booking with someone like United or American, you're paying 30,000 points each way in economy. Right. And this is business right. for less. And that's absolutely, you You hit it right on the head there because the other one that I did want to talk about was this British Airways Iberia Aer Lingus because it's one of the higher bonuses and you can use those points in some really creative ways. They're not great when you have connecting flights. They're not great on super long hauls a lot of the time, especially with British Airways because they add those segments up. But if you have direct flights and you're taking some shorter flights, especially here in the U.S., you can't come close to this deal to fly on American Airlines. It's wonderful. That's right. I'm especially excited about it because during the pandemic, my British Airways account has been sitting for a little while and I have miles that will expire in... I don't know, two or three months or something. But now I can send a couple thousand over from Amex and bam, my miles are extended. I got a 40% bonus. I'm ready to fly next time I need to book an American flight. Right. And again, like you say, they're not good for long haul, typically the the obvious programs. But the benefit of distance-based award charts is they don't recognize zones or areas. A flight is a flight, right? So here's another good example for you folks that may live in Miami or Southern Florida. You have a lot of American flights out of Miami to Caribbean. You find those shorter non-stops from Miami to the Caribbean islands, you're probably flying those for 6,000 points. And again, you'll have 900 points left over. And just in case you don't have enough American Express membership rewards points, they're throwing out their business platinum 150,000 point welcome bonus with 15,000 spend in three months. That offer, they are throwing it out like candy. This week, I got an emailed offer. My wife and I both got a physical mailer. We're seeing reports of people getting them all over the place and just sending out offer after offer after offer. So you can get that 150,000 points. If you do it really quickly, you might even be able to sneak it in before the end of the month, which is when these transfer bonuses are supposed to go through. And I know a little bit about this, Jeff, like you. You say you and your wife just opened those cards. I, last night, uh, the last day of August, I was approved for my fourth business platinum card, the third with no lifetime language included. Three of those four have been the 150,000-point offers, and I've opened all of those since last October, October of 2020. So four business platinums in the last 11 months. Uh, my math is terrible, but three of those at 150 and one of them at 110, I believe that's 560,000 membership rewards in the last 11 months off of biz platinum so like you say great way to replenish those accounts and you can send them out 
to airline or hotel partners with these transfer bonuses. So you've got all sorts of membership rewards points sitting around. You can transfer them out and you can book all these different flights if only your employer would let you travel internationally. You would think so, Jeff. Unfortunately, the Charles Schwab devaluation happened today, going from cash outs at 1.25 cents per point to 1.1 cents per point. So, of course, Derek, after being a approved for a fourth business platinum at around 9 p.m., decided it was time to burn the stash to the ground and cash out to Charles Schwab. So I'm currently sitting on, you know, uh, maybe six six or 7,000 points, not enough to transfer, although I'll take my own advice. Maybe I should look for some Caribbean flights from Miami because uh, I have enough for that. But looking forward to hitting that minimum spin on the Biz Platinum and building that membership reward stash back up. I think it's a good move, and I'm excited to get a couple more Business Platinums in our household, too. If you're looking for other types of points, we're not going to talk too much about it. But yes, of course, absolutely, we're going to mention the Chase Sapphire Preferred 100,000-point offer and the City Premier 80,000-point offer lifetime high, all-time high, however you want to say it, the highest offers we have ever seen on those two cards. And if you want to know what we think of those cards, go back and listen to some previous segments. They're wonderful. They're the best two cards you could get starting out. They're great. Highly recommend them. But we just want to make you understand that these offers are still out there. They're not going to stick around forever. That's all I have to say about those cards today. Yep, if you need a new card, uh, go to your favorite podcast, milesandpints.com. Use those affiliate links, and we would be very grateful. If you're eligible, you're ready for a new card, go get either the 100,000-point Chase Sapphire Preferred or the 80,000 City Premier. And with that, Jeff, we'll move on to hotel news for the week. We have a couple of uh, hotel promotions, one that you touched on last week, and a new one. The new one this week is Marriott. They are, uh, as they typically do, they follow behind another hotel chain uh, in announcing a promotion. And last week we mentioned the new Hilton promotion and the new Hyatt promotion, which the Hyatt promotion so bad we barely discussed it. But in true Marriott fashion, they are third in line with the big three and announced their own promotion this week. 1,500 bonus points per stay. That is 3,000 bonus points if your stay is at an all-inclusive. And that promotion goes from the time you're listening to this podcast through December 12th, 2021. You must register in advance, and you are eligible to earn those bonus points. Again, 1500 on a stay, 3000 on an all-inclusive stay. Uh, you are eligible to earn those bonus points on the first stay. And I immediately look at that and see that that's per stay and not per night. And I think if I'm traveling with a P2, we're booking every other night out of the opposite account. So we're getting 1,500 bonus points for every single night we stay there. And usually they'll link those and let you stay in the same room if you're doing that. Just contact the hotel ahead of time. But there's ways to maximize that promotion. Is that promotion the best one out there? Absolutely not. The Hilton one that we talked about is the best promotion that's out there. Two times base points um, on all stays, three times base points if you're using a co-branded card. 
in addition to that, you get your diamond bonus and your Aspire bonus. If you have that American Express Aspire card, you can get up to 54 points per dollar. That's a lot better than 1,500 bonus points per stay. So I think Hilton wins this round. I think they beat Hyatt. I think Marriott probably beat Hyatt in this this promotion round. But uh, I think Hilton is the clear winner still. Here's the problem I have with this Marriott promotion, Jeff. And I love to hate on Marriott, but I think this one's justified. You get the same amount of bonus points, 1,500, which in the grand scheme of things is not a lot. All points aren't created equal, and Marriott points don't have a ton of value these days. Probably somewhere around 0.6 to 0.7 cents each. Um, But the problem I have with a bonus like this, Jeff, you get the same amount of bonus points whether you stay one night at an off-peak 5,000-point hotel or 10 nights at 100,000 a night peak category eight, right? How does that make any sense? You get 1,500 bonus points if you give Marriott 5,000 or if you give them a million plus. That's that's stupid. It makes zero sense. It should ramp up at least a little bit. But also, if I'm trying to earn Marriott points, I'm staying at a whole lot of low-level courtyards. Yeah, not a lot of Ritz Carlton stays are going to be booked to earn yeah. points with this yeah. promo. I don't yeah. think. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I mean, you know, I try and uh, I try and earn as many points as I can, but you won't find Derek and Sarah really like stretching their Marriott points at those uh, peak Category Eight properties that are 100k a night. Yeah, no, that's just ridiculous. But anyway, that's my main beef with this promo like you say you got to stretch it out a little bit maybe make it per night even if it were 500 per night something it it seems ridiculous that a one night stay at a you know an off-peak cat one is the same as a multi-night stay at a peak cat eight ridiculous yeah not going to push any stays over to marriott but you know maybe still a few to hilton other than that, not a huge amount of stuff going on in the hotel world this week. Let's pop over to airlines where we have a little bit of news. And again, it's this 1500 seems to be the magic number for this. But uh, Etihad Guest has is celebrating their 15th birthday celebration or their 15th anniversary celebration from now through September 6th. So not too long. You only have a couple more days for this. But they are giving everyone 1,500 free miles just for registering it for it. You don't have to fly. You don't have to book anything. You don't have to do anything other than fill out a quick registration with your account number. If you don't have an account, sign up for the account. I read somewhere today, I think, that they're giving you 1,500 miles to sign up for a new account as well. So you could earn 3,000 total. Don't quote me on that because I didn't look into it and I didn't follow the link, so I'm not 100% sure that's true. But I know that through the 6th, you can get this 1,500 free miles simply by filling out a form. In addition to that, if you're booking tickets through September 6th or if you're buying anything with your miles, which you shouldn't do because it's never a good deal, then you can get the buying things, that is, not the booking tickets. But if you're booking tickets with them, you get 15% of the miles that you used refunded on any of those redemptions during this promotional period, so through September 6th. And if you are not familiar with the Etihad guest program, uh, there are some sweet spots, and we don't have enough time to get into those. But uh, if you find a sweet spot or two that you are ready to book, 
taking this 15% off some of those flights is a really, really good deal. So um, take a look. Uh, consider uh, booking something if you're ready to travel or you want to book it up to a year out. And, uh, and you'll save some points, and that's always a good thing. Other airline news, Jeff, Southwest continues to have some issues. Uh, we're not used to this from Southwest. I am a Southwest loyalist, and it makes me sad to talk about all their problems. But they continue to cut thousands of flights through the end of the year now, through the end of December, attempting to uh, cut down on future cancellations and flight delays. They are having problems with staffing. They have had all kinds of bad weather problems. It seems like all of their hubs uh, and their main areas, uh, airport areas, are really getting hammered by storms, and they're just struggling right now. So um, a lot of people really like to book those Southwest flights early uh, as soon as the schedule opens, so those flights may have been, you may have booked those flights months ago. Be prepared for cancellations. Be prepared for flight delays, and just know through the end of the year it may be a mess while flying Southwest Airlines. And remember that as they cancel all those flights, everyone who's booked on them is now looking for other flights. So don't wait to try and rebook your travel if you have one of these cancellations hit. Look and try and get it done as quick as you can. Sad to see that from Southwest, but also it is nice. At least they're admitting, I guess it's not fully defeat, but they're admitting that there's a problem and they're saying, look, we're not going to promise to get all these people all these places because we're not going to be able to do it. We're going to cancel it, give them time to book something else, give them time to find another solution because we know that we don't have the staff or the ability to control the weather to make sure that we can get everyone to their destinations. Yeah. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, like you say, if these things are going to happen, you you would prefer, and again, we're talking uh, which worst thing would you like to happen, but we would prefer to know weeks or months in advance that your flight is no longer happening rather than on your way to the airport, at the airport, after a multi-hour delay, etc. So be ready for these changes, and like Jeff says, always be proactive. The moment you get that flight cancellation or a delay that no longer works for you, a time change or whatever... Go find a flight that works, call them, tell them what you want, and they will fix it for you. So always good advice, but especially uh, for Southwest for the rest of the year. And that does it for our major airline news this week. We're going to move on to some general travel stuff, which is a bunch of bad news and a little bit of good news, I think. The EU, as we talked about on our last episode, they were looking at removing the U.S. from the safe travel list. Well, they went ahead and did it. They voted to take the U.S. and I think there were six other countries at the same time off of the safe travel list, which provided easy access for Americans to go to EU countries. This is... Again, we have to take this a little bit with a grain of salt because all the EU does is recommend this to their member states or their member countries, and those countries have the ability to change regulations or keep them the same. We've already seen a few countries stepping things up and requiring negative tests in addition to vaccine cards. We've seen some of the EU countries banning unvaccinated Americans. It's likely that we will see more of that as the days go on. This just happened a couple of days ago. So 
if you're unvaccinated and planning to travel from Europe, I think that's going to get much, much more difficult for you. Definitely keep an eye on things. If you are vaccinated, it's going to get a little bit more difficult, especially in some countries that are going to start requiring COVID negative COVID tests as well as the vaccination cards. The other problem with this, as things are changing, is that airlines are having a hard time keeping up. And we've already seen reports of some airlines starting to tell people they have to have COVID tests when they're flying to countries that are not requiring it yet. And it's just going to be more confusing going down the line. So definitely, in addition to, if you're flying to Europe, in addition to paying attention to what the countries are requiring that you're going to, check with your airline and make sure they're not going to surprise you at the airport until you need a test that you didn't come to the airport with. And honestly, Jeff, I mean, as nerve wracking (laughs) as it is to try and travel to Europe right now, and it's probably only going to get worse uh, in a in a planning and preparation standpoint over the next few weeks. But I can only imagine the stress and the headache of going to your job every day for these, like you say, these airline employees that are uh, in charge of keeping their airlines policy up to date with these EU member nations. I mean, we're not talking about these things changing month to month. We're talking about them changing day to day. So what might have worked for last night's flight may not work for the first flight the next morning. And what I found in looking at the countries that I'm hoping to go to later this month is that it's also not all in one place. There is no single page you can go to for any of the countries that I'm looking at to find the most up-to-date information. They may update the page that's already there. They may do a separate announcement. They may have a separate press release. They may announce it on Twitter. Who knows where they're going to tell you that things are updated. So it's very, very difficult to follow. I 100% agree with you. I can't imagine like some of these airline employees where their airline flies to several countries and every morning they get up and go, well, I got to dig up this information again. And you almost have to have contacts in all of the other countries who can tell you what's changed. Yeah, it has to be a logistical nightmare. And then disseminating that info to all of your airports so the gate agents knows exactly what they are gathering from the passengers that are boarding, you know, flight XYZ to, you know, this country and flight ABC to that country with different rules. So it's got to, it's got to be a headache. Uh, it's got to be frustrating. And just remember, these people don't want to be doing this stuff either. So be nice, be courteous, and, uh, and, and know that all of these things, you, you know, even if they're telling you wrong information, you're not going to change their mind. You just got to gotta do it right and and be ready to roll with the punches because uh we are in a (laughs) i think this is the definition of a fluid situation and things are changing rapidly and in line with this uh extreme confusion and mess of regulations i want to give a quick update on the digital covid certificate that you are supposed to be able to get from france if you are traveling to france They announced this back at the beginning of August, I think it was. Since then, the application process has changed three times, I think, maybe four times. When I originally applied, I had to gather all my documents and email them to an email address that was on. They had a form you had to fill out. I went and looked at it today. There is now a site where you register for the site, 
and fill out your information there and upload all your documents. So I went ahead and completed that today. I heard nothing from my original one. At least today I got a confirmation that my application was submitted. So we'll see how that goes. I'm seeing reports. Some people get their digital certificates in 15 minutes. Some people get them in two or three days. Some people have never heard another thing about it. So who knows? If I don't hear anything, maybe I'll apply again a day or two before I get there or once I'm in France. But uh, kind of a logistical mess as far as trying to figure out if I'm going to actually get one of those certificates before I travel there in a couple of weeks. Yeah. And with that, that was a lot of negative news. Let's go to some positive news, as you hinted about, Jeff. We heard this week from Qantas that Australia say, says they are on pace to open their borders by December. Uh, and I don't know about you, Jeff, but someone that had a... Uh, Two-week trip to New Zealand, canceled in 2020, one I was really, really looking forward to. Not even trying to book it again for 2021, knowing they probably weren't opening. The first glimmer of hope that, uh, you know, the South Pacific, Australia, and maybe New Zealand eventually will be open in 2021. It's such a breath of fresh air. It is, and that's why I put it in here for us to talk about because I know so many people who had trips to that region canceled and so many people who love traveling to Australia that have just been waiting and waiting and waiting and we've heard rumors that they may stay closed into 2022 and we don't know for sure that this is going to happen, but even, like you said, that glimmer of hope, that light at the end of the tunnel to start thinking that we might be able to plan travel to such an amazing country, continent, amazing place is just wonderful, wonderful news. On the domestic front, air travel numbers are trending downward, which is not a huge surprise because things travel was up quite a bit domestically for the summer. But as the summer comes to an end, we're seeing things drop, drop, drop as the Delta variant is spreading here in the U.S. and people are starting to not travel as much. This means a couple of things. It means we'll start to see some more flight cancellations as the loads aren't high enough. But it also means that we're going to start seeing some deals from airlines. So if you're vaccinated and you're comfortable traveling and there are some places you want to go, whether it's to visit family or friends or to visit a national park or see somewhere that you haven't seen before. If you think you can do that responsibly, make sure that you keep an eye out this fall as we expect to see some flight deals coming out. Yeah, as a traveler and a lover of travel, I'm hopeful that these numbers, as you alluded to, are mostly due to the fact that the vast majority of the country, uh, the children are back to school. Uh, and let's hope it's just this pre-Labor Day lull in travel because schools have reopened. I'm curious, honestly, Jeff, and hopefully we can talk about it next week. I'm curious to see what the travel numbers look like over Labor Day weekend, uh, this upcoming weekend, as compared to especially 2020 and 2019. If the Labor Day travel uh, is obviously higher than 2020 and close to 2019, um, I think it's a good sign. Uh, I know people are getting scared about Delta, uh, but you know, let's hope, you know, we all need to have one last glimmer of hope because <laughs> it's starting to look like it may be a long, cold winter again, Jeff, with the with the Delta variant, other variants popping up. So it is a whole lot of indoor time and a whole lot of 
getting really cold if you're eating outdoors. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So let's hope those Labor Day numbers are good. And we hope all of you uh, that want to travel are going to be able to travel this Labor Day and you have a safe and happy holiday weekend uh, as summer comes to an end. And just one quick note as we close up here, I am one of those people who will be traveling this weekend. I had booked this a while ago. We talked about it on the podcast. I booked the Tennessee on me deal where with two hotel nights, I got a $250 airline voucher. I still have that voucher sitting around and I'll have to use it at some point coming up here. But my hotel nights are coming up this weekend. I'm headed to Nashville for a U.S. Soccer World Cup qualifier game. They're playing Canada on Sunday night. I get in Saturday evening and will be in Nashville through Tuesday afternoon. So if anyone is local there to the Nashville area and you want to grab a beer or say hi or you're going to the game or the night before festivities, any of that, just reach out and let me know and I'll be happy to get together with you. I would prefer if you're vaccinated if we're going to do that. And that's all we have for our Miles and Points with Pints this week. We'll be back next week with some more updates on travel credit cards, hotels, airlines, and anything that gets you through the sky. Well, we hope you had as much fun listening to Ashley as we did talking to her. I don't know about you, but that conversation kind of made me want to get some bees and start making mead. All of the important points and links for things we talked about during our conversation will be in the show notes, so you can pick up anything you missed the first time through. The easiest place to find those notes is at milesandpints.com. Thanks so much for listening to Miles and Pints, the travel and beer podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to subscribe so you can hear all of our new episodes as soon as they're released. Tell your friends and family about us so they can enjoy the show too. And please take a few minutes to leave us a review on your favorite listening platform. In between episodes, you can get more travel and beer content by following at Miles and Pints on Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok. You can also stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash milesandpints. And that's all we have for this episode. Until next time, we hope you'll find yourselves a little bit of travel, a little bit of beer, and a whole lot of fun. If you love to travel